The rest of you, we're going to be in 1 Corinthians, continuing our march through the book, 1 Corinthians chapter 8. The last three weeks, we've seen a number of things. Paul has exhorted them to, in chapter 6, to glorify God with their bodies. And then he followed that up in chapter 7 by encouraging them to both glorify God in their marriages and to glorify God in their singleness. But now he's moving on to chapter 8, picking up on a related but a new theme, a renewed emphasis specifically on Christian liberty. And so if you would now hear the reading of God's word, and follow along with me. 1 Corinthians chapter 8. Now concerning food offered to idols, we know that all of us possess knowledge. This knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. If anyone imagines that he loves something, he does not yet know as he ought to know, but if, he, if anyone loves God, he is known by God. Therefore, as to the eating of food offered to idols, we know that an idol has no real existence, and, and quote, there is no God but one. For although there may be so-called gods in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is one God, the Father, from whom are all things and for whom we exist, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. However, not all possess this knowledge, but some, through former association with idols, eat food as really offered to an idol, and their conscience, being weak, is defiled. Food will not commend us to God. We are no worse off if we do not eat, and no better off if we do eat. But take care that this right of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. For if anyone sees you who have knowledge eating in an idol's temple, will he not be encouraged? And if his conscience is weak to eat food offers to idols? And so by your knowledge, this weak person is destroyed, the brother for whom Christ died. Thus sinning against your brothers and wounding their conscience when it is weak, you sin against Christ. Therefore, if food makes my brother stumble, I will never eat meat, lest I make my brother stumble. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. Amen. All of us want our Christianity to be useful, not only to ourselves, but to others. That's the ABCs of Christian discipleship. Since Jesus served me, not seeking to be served, but to serve by giving his life as a ransom for me? Well, then I want to serve other people. I want to do things that are helpful to my fellow brothers and sisters in Christ and that are helpful to my neighbors. So do you need us? Do you need me to, to bring you a meal when you're recovering? Happy to do it. Do you need to borrow my car for the weekend? I'll gladly give you the keys. Do you need help packing up and moving to another house or another place? You can take my 15-year-old son. <laughs> Do you need me to give up meat and become a vegetarian for life? No problem. I'm glad to serve you. 
You say, hold up, that seems a bit extreme now, doesn't it? Car keys are one thing, but giving up meat for life, that seems like an altogether different thing. But isn't that what verse 13 says? My brother, if becoming a lifelong vegetarian helps out another member of my church, then bring on the tofu burgers. I'm happy to do it. We're about to embark on a dangerous set of sermons. Here in chapter 8, we need to become a veggie, maybe. Chapter 9, become all things to all people. And if you have to give up your culture for another to do it, then you do it. Chapter 10, give no offense to anyone, Christians or non-Christians. Just try to please everyone in everything that you do, not seeking your own advantage, but ultimately the advantage of others, that they may be saved. And that's really the guiding principle of these three chapters. What does my Christianity need to look like to be spiritually useful to you? What areas of life, as we consider that, might this have an impact on? Should I drink alcohol or, or should I smoke a cigar? Can I read Harry Potter or listen to my favorite pop musician? What about rated R movies? And, and should my kids celebrate Santa Claus or go trick-or-treating? What kind of clothes should I wear? What kind of house or car should I buy? How much house is too much house? And how much car is too much car? Can I eat beef? Can I eat pork? Can I eat fish? Verse 13, can I eat meat at all? Is that, is that what Paul's saying? Well, now, if you're anything like me, then your first reaction to verse 13 might be something like, well, that was then, but things are a little bit different now. Or maybe you're inwardly protesting Ah, but, 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 it's not wrong to eat meat, Paul. I can eat it if I want. Who are you to say that I can? I'm free in Christ. These are my rights. And that kind of reaction makes total sense from me, from you, from anybody. If our Christianity, if my Christianity is all about me. If you're inclined to think that your Christian freedom is all about doing whatever you want, as long as you're not personally sinning, then this is a dangerous sermon for you. For one, these cultural reasons why these kinds of passages, the cultural reasons in these kinds of passages are challenging to us. The language of chapters 8 through 10, it's all about rights and freedom. And, and we're not just Americans, we're Texans. Personal rights, freedom... Oh, yeah, give me more of that. That's what we're all about. For another thing, these parts of the Bible take us back 2,000 years to an issue that doesn't seem to have anything to do with us at all. Verse 1, food offers to, offered to idols? What? What are we talking about? But, beloved, we don't want to get tripped up on superficial readings. Becoming a lifelong vegetarian isn't really the point of the passage. What we're really doing is finding out this. Who does your Christianity benefit? Who is it for? What do we need to know? What, what truths do we need to embrace? And what errors should we avoid if we want to be spiritually useful to others? You may have noticed from the reading that chapter 8 is all about knowledge. That word is used time and again. In the logic of the passage, it essentially goes something like this. Verses 1 through 3 asks, what's the purpose of your theology? Does it puff up or does it build up? 
But knowledge, you get it, knowledge by itself isn't a bad thing. No, verses 4 through 8, good theology, Paul says, brings freedom. That said, you and I, we've got to be really careful. Because in verses 9 to 13, freedom without love is bad theology. That's the logic of the text. You can follow along in the back of your bulletin. You'll see those, that same logical flow there. But the entire argument in chapter 8 really can be summed up like this. This is going to be my argument to you. I'm going to aim to prove it over the course of the next 30 or 40 minutes. And that's that useful Christianity restrains freedom with love. Useful Christianity restrains freedom with love. Look at verse 1. In verse 1, Paul tackles another common teaching in the Corinthian church. That's why you see it all in quotes. He's been doing this all the way throughout the book. And, and the Corinthians are saying that everyone knows the truth about, quote, food sacrifice to idols. We all know, they say in verse 4, that idols aren't real. And since they're not real, we can eat the food that's cooked on their altars. Their logic might go something like this. The meat that's cooked under the big W at Whataburger is no different than the, than the meat that's cooked under the statue of Zeus. That statue isn't God, it's just wood or stone, just like the big W is neon and steel. The meat is still cow, so if you go to Zeus's place for a good meal, go for it. We're free in Christ. Now, some of you might be thinking, whoa, 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 whoa wait a minute, that can't be okay, can it? But I want you to notice that nowhere in chapter 8, as you just kind of scan through it, does Paul ever correct their theology, their knowledge about idols and their knowledge about food sacrifice to idols wasn't wrong. But they were wrong about the way that they thought about one another. Verse 1, they said, all of us possess this knowledge. But Paul corrects them in verse 7. Actually, no, he says, that's not true. Not all of you know this. Well, perhaps some might say, well, if other Christians don't know this, they should, and that ain't my problem. They need to read a few more good books. They need to catch up. Paul says, you see, that is a problem. Your knowledge of good theology has outpaced your knowledge of your fellow brothers and sisters. And that's a problem. Because good theology, lacking love, is bad theology. And so here's a test. Verse 1, Paul says, here's a test. What's the purpose of your theology? What's it useful for? What does it do? Does it build up or does it puff up? What does it do? Paul uses that same word throughout the letter, that, that word puff up. He uses it throughout the letter to describe these church members. You may recall all the way back in chapter 4 that they become puffed up, just like they're puffed up or arrogant teachers. He uses those two words, and the translation uses them interchangeably, puffed up and arrogant. In chapter 5, Paul chafes at the arrogance or the puffed upness of their tolerance towards sexual immorality in the church. Later on in verse 13, that famous love paragraph that so many of us recite at our weddings, Paul tells them love isn't puffed up. Love isn't arrogant, but you are. And that gets to the heart of Paul's test in verse 1. He says, compare mere knowledge to love. What does it do? How useful is it? Because without love, good theology doesn't build up, it puffs up. 
So, beloved, I wonder if our church would pass Paul's test. How might someone describe Covenant Baptist Church? Maybe we might be thought of as a relatively young church. We got lots of kiddos. That's fair. We're a fertile church, okay? A church that loves the Bible and good theology. Man, I hope so. I hope people think of us that way. But please, God, please, 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 may it never be the case that we would ever, ever, ever be called puffed up. What a horrible thing to be. Thinking that we're so important that we're better than everybody else. Or because we have more knowledge than some others, perhaps, that we're worth more than more to God. That we're more gifted, that we're better than. You realize, Paul says, knowledge really isn't your issue. Pride is. Loveless knowledge is your issue. So Paul says here in verse 1 that their theology may be good, and it is. They know the right things, but all of it's done to fill them up with hot air and to puff them up. Knowledge alone, he says, cannot build up, but knowledge tempered by love does. That's the goal. Because love never looks at another person and wonders, am I spiritually better than them? Love never looks at another person and says, I wonder in what ways I'm better than they are. No, love looks at another person and says, how can I spiritually help them? How can I build them up? No, love never scoffs. How do they not know this? Love says, how can I help them grow? Beloved, good theology by itself doesn't make our Christianity useful, but love does. Knowledge and freedom and rights alone cannot answer the question, what should I do in this or that situation? We also have to ask, what is the most loving thing to do? Now, I want to be clear. Paul is not anti-knowledge. He's not saying all you need is love. In chapters 9 and 10, Paul's going to say twice, do you not know? And the answer is, I want you to know something. So Paul cares very much that they would be knowledgeable, but there's different kinds of knowledge, isn't there? Some knowledge is really good. It builds up, but some knowledge is bad. For example, in verse 2, proud knowledge is bad. If anyone imagines that he knows something, then he does not yet know as he ought to know. No, proud knowledge is the kind of knowledge that thinks it knows everything. And that says everything that we know about you, and that is that you don't yet know as you ought to know. But good knowledge is humble. It delights to know anything about God. It loves sound doctrine and it wants to know more. But bad knowledge, no, bad knowledge always thinks that it's arrived. It looks down on others for not knowing what I know. Because I know more, I'm a better Christian than you. God values me more. Isn't he lucky to have a Christian like me in a church like this? Well, Paul says in verse 2, if that's what you think, well, then you don't know as much as you think you do. No, proud knowledge is a bad knowledge. But there's a second kind of bad knowledge, verse 3, and that's not just a proud knowledge. It's also an impersonal knowledge. And so here's a question that a number of us need to ask ourselves from time to time. Do we know only about God or do we know God? 
Do we only know things about God, propositional statements and truths that we can memorize and repeat and talk about? Or do we have an intimate and abiding knowledge of the one who has created and redeemed us? Do we think, I already know everything there is to know about God. Isn't he lucky to have a Christian like me in the church? No, that's a proud and personal knowledge. Beloved, God is not a subject to be studied. He is someone to be worshipped and adored. To the contrary, a personal knowledge says, he knows me. You see that there in verse 3? God knows me. And that is such a privilege. Why would such a God ever want to know me, a sinner, as his child, as a son or a daughter? And the more that I learn about this God and his glory and his grace, the more I think, who am I that such a God would ever care to know a little sinner like me? Covenant Baptist Church, what's the purpose of our knowledge? What kind of knowledge do we mostly exhibit in this church? One reason why I wanted to preach from this book, especially as we consider the confession throughout this year, is to keep us grounded. Because in some ways, I think this church, not in every way, but in some ways, this church is just like our church. They're tempted in some of the same ways that we might be tempted, and we share some of their dangers, which is why the rest of chapter 8 is really useful to us. And so on the one hand, Paul's going to affirm in verses 4 through 8 that good theology does indeed produce freedom. It's good that we understand the truth about God. It's good that we understand the truth about the gospel. It's good that we comprehend and enjoy the freedom that Christ has purchased for us. All of that is really good stuff. But then in verses 9 to 13, he's going to warn us. Be careful. Because good theology without love is bad theology. Healthy churches cannot be less than the sum of their doctrine, but they must be more. Put your eyes on verse 4. Why is it that they think they're free to eat food sacrificed to idols? Well, look here. It's, they were saying, well, we know that idols aren't real. Why? Because there's no God but one. Verse 4 is essentially Paul. They're just saying what Paul has preached everywhere. Everywhere that he goes, this is the message that he's preaching of the one true God, including the message that he preached in Corinth. You can see that in, in the book of Acts. And everywhere he went in the ancient world, people were very religious. They worshipped all kinds of gods, and, and they had loyalty to those gods, and, and that loyalty undergirded the government and commerce and education and every other sphere of life. And so when Paul and his team went around preaching, preaching a message that said, the gods that you worship aren't real. Well, you can imagine how popular that message was. Christians were mocked, they were beat up, they were imprisoned, and they were even killed because of this message. But here we see that that's what this church knew to be true, that in Christ was revealed the one true God, and there is no other God or Lord but Him. And in verse 5, Paul affirms them in their knowledge. He says, amen. There are all kinds of so-called gods and so-called lords in the world, yet verse 6... 
Yet for us, there is one God, the Father, from whom are all things and for whom we exist, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. Beloved, the Corinthian church had good theology. There are not lots of gods and lots of lords in the world, all of which deserve equal honor and equal respect. There is only one God and one Lord revealed by the Holy Spirit through the person and the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. Every other so-called God, Paul says, every other so-called Lord, according to the Corinthian confession, is a fake It is a carnal fiction invented by sinful creatures rebelling against the revelation of the only true God as they suppress the knowledge of him who created them. Friend, if you're here investigating Christian things, I'm glad you're here, but this is just a brief moment where you need, in love, a little truth in advertising. This is what we believe, and Christians everywhere around the world also believe too. That the atheist is wrong to deny God, and he knows it. The Buddhist is wrong too. And all those Hindu gods, they're not real. They're all lies. The Hindu gods are just more globally successful versions of the Greek and the Roman gods. But we can't stop at polytheists. Muslim people are wrong. Allah, which is just a generic Arabic term for God, Allah doesn't exist. If by Allah you mean a complete God without an eternal son, the man Jesus Christ, whose prophet is Muhammad, that God is not real. And it's not just Muslim people, but Jewish people also. That a Jewish person may claim to worship Jehovah, the God revealed in the Old Testament scriptures. But if they reject Jesus Christ as Lord, then the God that they call Jehovah isn't a real God because there is no Jehovah apart from the God who revealed himself in Christ. He is the image of the invisible God, such that to reject Christ is to reject Jehovah. So whatever Jehovah you worship is not the Jehovah of the Bible. It is not the Jehovah of the scriptures. To reject Christ is to reject Jehovah. Now, the Bible teaches, quote, that there is one God and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. And that, quote, there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we may be saved. Christ alone. There is only one God. There's a lot of so-called gods. There's a lot of so-called Lords, but the Christian message is essentially this. Every so-called God and every so-called Lord is a fake. It is a phony. It was invented by men to be worshipped by men, which is the foolishness of idolatry. And I realize that that makes some of you uncomfortable. You can understand why the Christian message caused riots. And this claim to exclusivity is just as riotous today as it was then. It may not get a Christian killed in the modern West, but it will get us canceled or it will get us canned. 
On August 15th, just a couple of weeks ago, Elizabeth Marbach, the now former communications director of the Ohio Right to Life, posted this tweet, quote, There is no hope for any of us outside of having faith in Jesus Christ alone. Now, you can imagine on Twitter the storm that brewed around it, and it was only escalated when the Republican Ohio Senator Max Miller rebuked her publicly on the site. I know it's not Twitter anymore, X, whatever you want to call it. And he said, this is one of the most bigoted tweets I've ever seen. Delete it, Lizzie. You have gone too far. Elizabeth Marbach was fired shortly after. Senator Miller and others insist that every so-called God and Lord deserves equal honor and equal respect, at least in public. And so keep your exclusive claims to yourself, if you will. But according to 1 Corinthians 8, we're mistaken to believe that we need to be more respectful to so-called gods and so-called lords now than these Christians were then. Oh, you have your God and you have your Lord and we have ours and that's just the way of things. Now, like today, the religions of Paul's day were huge and diverse. They were culturally beautiful, and they had countless followers. They were the bedrock of ancient civilization. All the universities and the religious centers and the streams of commerce and the government authorities revolved around these religions, and the Christians had the audacity to stand up in public and say, not real. You have believed a lie, and it's to your destruction but we know the one true God revealed in Christ. Repent and believe in him. Beloved, this is exactly how we love our friends from a different religion. Maybe not preaching at them face to face in the way that I'm preaching just, just now, but we love them well by not being shy about the exclusive claims of Christ for salvation. We cannot you know, to love our neighbor is to lean into and own the exclusive claims of Christianity because, friend, if you worship any other God or Lord beside the only true God revealed in Jesus Christ, then you have built your life on a lie. And that's our genuine concern for you from love. And so we would urge you to turn from your so-called gods and turn to the Lord Jesus Christ in faith. Going back to our text, we see here that Paul agreed with the Corinthians in all of these things. He says, that is good theology. That statue is not God. That idol is not a Lord. It, that food, it's just cow. So go into Zeus's place for a good meal, go for it. You're free in Christ to do it. That's good theology. But, he says, he does it in the chapter there, but... Verse 7, he adds a qualification. However, he says, not every member in this church has that knowledge yet. Not everybody understands what you understand. Not everybody knows what you know. And so keeping these brothers and sisters in mind, here's the question that you need to ask. Not just, what am I free to do? What do I have the right to do? You need to ask the question, what would love say for these brothers and sisters? What would love do? 
You rightly see that idol, he says, and you see only a piece of wood. You see only a piece of stone. But in your church, he says, is a bunch of ex-idol worshipers. And where you see that piece of cow being offered on a block of wood or a block of stone, good to eat when they're done, they see food really being offered to an altogether different God. And in their conscience, if they eat that meat, they are essentially worshiping that God. And if their weak conscience says so, even if you know, Paul says, even if I know that it's not true, but their conscience says it's so, then they're essentially committing idolatry. Verse 7, they have defiled themselves. So he looks at them and he says, listen, you with good knowledge, you with good theology, knowing that about your brother and sister, what would love do? What would love do? You may be free in Christ to eat the meat, but love for your brother restrains your freedom and says, yeah, but maybe you shouldn't do it. Maybe you should refrain. Because verse 8, he says, food really isn't in the end of things. It's not all that important because what you eat or what you don't eat doesn't ultimately commend you to God. He puts all the food into perspective. He says, no, you're no better off if you do eat and you're no better off if you don't eat. So why don't you give love a try instead? Instead of grumbling about the tyranny of the weaker brother holding you back or insisting on my rights and my freedom, ask instead, what would most build up the person who doesn't yet know what I know? whose conscience is weaker than mine on this or that issue and needs time to grow, how can I help them grow without being a stumbling block in their way? Because if your good theology lacks love and you insist on your freedom at the expense of your weaker brothers and sisters, Paul says, then you risk destroying the one for whom Christ died. All for a good piece of steak. Was it worth it? So Paul concludes in verses 9 to 13, take care. Good theology leads to freedom. But freedom without love, oh, that's bad theology. Consider how this might play out, verses 9 and 10. Your weaker brother sees you walking into a temple to do some business or to shop for some good food, and it says here that that encourages him. Here, Paul's using a play on words. That word translated encouraged in the middle of verse 10 is also used all the way back up in verse 1. It's translated there to build up. In verse 1, Paul's saying to the stronger brother, it is your job to build up the weaker brother in the knowledge of Christ. But here in verse 10, he says, what you've done instead is build up their conscience. You've built up calluses on their conscience. Meaning that the weaker brother still thinks there's a real God named Zeus to worship, but he sees you, a mature Christian, going into Zeus's temple to eat or to do business. And so he does the same. For you, it's just all about food or maybe getting some income. You're free in Christ after all. Your conscience is strong, but his conscience is weak. To him, he's turning his back on the true God and going back to his old religion. And so you can imagine where his conscience must be then to make that kind of decision. He's saying, You've been, you have built up his conscience 
such that he cannot hear it and will not obey it anymore. And that's a dangerous place for them to be. Paul says this kind of building up is the opposite of what love does. Verse 11, you ate, he stumbled, and you destroyed him. That's hard language. Some commentators think that by destroyed him, it means that they went to hell. That's not what I think it means because we see later on the passage that this is a brother for whom Christ has died and his blood is sufficient and he will lose not one for whom he has shed his blood. I take destroyed to mean that you have destroyed his assurance. He is now filled with doubt and insecurity, and he wavers, maybe even questions on the basis of his actions, whether or not he's even a real Christian. You have destroyed his assurance because you have destroyed his conscience. You may be confident in your freedom, but now this brother's sure, not even sure that he's a Christian anymore. Can you see what Paul's getting at? Who is your Christianity for? Who is your freedom for? Just yourself to do whatever you want as long as it's not sin? Or is it for the advantage of others around you? Now, the puffed up Christian might say, well, it's not my fault that they don't get the gospel. It's not my fault that they're so weak. It's not my fault that they're so immature. They need to catch up. But Paul says, no, actually, it may be your fault. By abusing your freedom at his expense, he's been stunted in his growth and maybe be drifting away from Christ and back into idolatry. No, you do bear some responsibility for that, Paul says, that you may have actually, verse 12, sinned against your brother. And in wounding their conscience in this way, you have sinned against Christ, who has shed his blood to cleanse their conscience all for a good cut of meat. Listen, I like a good meal or a good drink or a good smoke. Well, maybe not a good smoke. A good movie or a good music as much as the next guy. And those things are worth an awful lot sometimes. God's created them. We're free to enjoy God's creation. But here's what Paul's asking. Are any of those things so valuable to you that you would destroy your family for them? He says, no, no, no. That is the real idolatry here. That you would destroy your brother or sister for a piece of meat. Or he says, brother and sister, when you consider that Christ was crucified for you, what is there that you would not give up for a brother or sister that Christ Jesus gave up a thousand times over in love to save you? Is that movie that important? Is that drink or that cigar, that pipe, and that moment that important? Is purchasing that house or that car that important? And all of those things, we can't just ask, what am I 
free to do? What do I have the right to do? We have to also consider the brothers and sisters whom God has put around us, and we have to ask, what would love do? What would love do? Paul says, you may have good theology, but good theology lacking love is bad theology. You're puffed up, and now they're destroyed. And so verse 13, now it makes sense. Wouldn't you rather never eat meat? Wouldn't you rather be a veggie for life than risk the destruction of another Christian? That is a no-brainer, he says. So you and I need to understand that Christian liberty is not just a freedom that Christ has purchased us for us to do whatever we want, whenever we want, as long as it's not sin. And those who are so uptight are overly scrupulous, just need to get over it. No, he says that is sin. You love that thing more than you love your weaker brother or your weaker sister. Christian freedom, the freedom that Christ has purchased for us, is the kind of freedom so restrained by love that says, I can give up anything in this entire world if it's useful to you for the sake of Christ. Nothing is so valuable as that. Let's pray.